0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name
1: is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I want to take you back to a conversation we had. I think it was last December. It was right after I went to see... The new, the most recent Star Wars movie, Rogue One.
0: Oh yes, uh, and and I am on the cusp, the very cusp of seeing it myself. I'm waiting for it to become rent uh, a rental option. So. Oh, it's not yet. No, no, still got still a week or two out. Right. So has everything been spoiled for you so far? No, people have been a little um, cooler on this one. Um, I think some things are probably spoiled for me, but not like that last one where everybody just really felt the need to, uh, you know, just lay it all out on social media.
1: Let me let me spoil one thing for you here. Mm-hmm. They go to space. Ah, and there's a war there. Yeah, our stars. Among the stars. But there is one thing in the movie. Okay, so mild spoiler for Rogue One coming out. It's something that probably everybody already knows. It's also not really about the content of the movie, but just about which characters you see. Mm -hmm. But if you are ready, are you ready for this mild spoiler? Okay, we get to see if you remember back to the original Star Wars back. Go back to the 70s. Peter Cushing as Grand Moff Tarkin, the guy who was, in fact, Darth Vader's boss on the oh, Death yeah. Star. he was you great for him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's the, uh, enough of this. Vader, release him and we love peter cushing because he was in all these old monster movies he's he goes back to the hammer movies oh yeah he was he, in, was
0: he was dr frankenstein like the villainous dr frankenstein of the hammer films and he
1: i think was the hero of the version of the mummy that has christopher lee as as the mummy mm-hmm. uh the one i've got the poster for it in the house except it's the belgian poster so it's uh la malédiction de feron <laughs> Uh But yeah, so Peter Cushing was the original Grand Moff Tarkin, this bad Empire guy who was Darth Vader's boss. And the thing they do in the new Rogue One is they bring him back. He's dead. He has passed away. Mm-hmm. And this movie takes place a little bit before the original Star Wars is supposed to have taken place. But they, they bring this character back. and They have an actor stand in as him. But it's not just a recast role. They try to make it look as if this is Peter Cushing standing here delivering the lines
0: with CGI. And this is an odd choice because, all right, so you're going to have Darth Vader in there. That's easy to do. Darth Vader's a dude in a suit. Yeah. Voiced by James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones is still alive. So you can check that one off the list. But uh, Grandma Tarkin, like you said... Uh, the, the actor is dead. So it seems to me like the, the first easiest thing to do is just don't have those scenes. If you know it's going to yeah. be problematic, don't even mess with it. Or um, just use an actual living actor, such as Wayne uh, Pygram, who played him in Re- Revenge of the Sith. Or go with Ben Cross, who's another actor that I've seen over the years brought up his p- potential Tarkin casting. Or, heck, go with Ralph Fiennes. Like, clearly you have oh. the money to throw down the well of expensive CGI equipment. Just go ahead and hire Ralph Fiennes. I know he's pricey, but he's great. And Fiennes. he's the consummate evil Brit. Yeah, he even kind of looks like a younger Peter Cushing. Yeah. He's got that same kind of angular face, like the thin, long face with the jaw and the scowl. Mm-hmm. It's all there. And it's not like fans of various franchise are not clearly cool with recasting. It's not like we're going to be thrown into a, you know, a, a traumatic spin because you can look to game of Thrones, James Bond, twilight, Harry Potter, etc. Like we, we get it. We can roll with a recast.
1: Now I want to go in two completely different directions. Thinking about this CGI grand Moff Tarkin. Mm-hmm. One is that I, I, I didn't like it in the movie. Okay. I saw mm-hmm. it and I was just like, Ugh, don't want this. It, Pulled me out of the movie. It made me stop being in the story and just thinking about, huh, how did they do that? I don't, on one hand, it looked great. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like when you see the movie, I think you will kind of have to agree. It's, unless I'm missing something, it's the best CGI simulation of a real person that I've ever seen. Like, it looks amazing, but it still looks not quite good enough that I can just accept it and go with it. I kept hmm. continually thinking like, uh, what am I looking at? It's almost really him, but it's not quite
0: really him, and it made me feel icky. Ah, so in this, it made you descend into what, uh, we've come to know as a, as a, as a species. As the Uncanny Valley.
1: Right. So today is going to be the first of two episodes we want to do about the Uncanny Valley. And this first one, we want to descend into the Uncanny Valley, but not just talk about it in terms of the the standard pop culture phenomenon, because this is one of those sci-tech concepts that is totally filtered down into the mainstream. Everybody talks about the Uncanny Mm -hmm. Valley. It's a totally normal, ground-level pop culture phenomenon now, especially with as much bad CGI as we encounter in the movies. But it's also a scientific field of study. It's something that people are looking into with empirical research to try to figure out, does it really exist? If it does really exist, what causes it? What can be done about it? So we want to look at it from both of
0: these angles today. Right. So we should probably roll through some just fun examples of this. We're we're going to try not to go too long on this. Uh, if we do, we'll cut it and save it for trailer talk. Either way, we'll probably <laughs> do a Facebook Live trailer talk uh, on an upcoming Friday uh, about some of these movies.
1: OK, so I want to go back to a much earlier experience for me.
0: Robert, did you see The Mummy Returns in 2001? Remember this one? <laughs> I don't think I saw The Mummy Returns. I saw The Mummy and I remember digging it at the time. Uh, but not, not the old Hammer one or the universal one. No, here. no, the, uh, yeah, the, the, the re, the reboot
1: of the mummy. What's his name? Brendan Fraser.
0: Yeah. And what? Arnold Voslo, I believe Vosloo. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he, I, I enjoyed him as they, they kind of brought in some of these aspects of the tragic, uh, uh-huh. mummy figure, which I liked.
1: Yeah. 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 Okay. But in 2001, we got the Scorpion King. This mm. is a character that appears in the mummy returns <laughs> and he's pretty much, if you want to picture it, if you haven't seen the movie, actually, you should look up video of this. We're going to tell you to go look up images and video quite a few times in these episodes. Because some visual aids will help. But if you want to picture it, picture the concept of a centaur, except replace the horse parts with scorpion parts and some okay. other random arthropod bits. And the man part on top is Dwayne the Rock Johnson, <laughs> except it's not Dwayne the Rock Johnson. There's a, there's a bit of a problem with the rock. So the scorpion, ki- scorpion, the scorpion king scuttles into action in the film and you can tell immediately something is wrong because it's not just the rock. It's this CGI upper body designed to look like the rock. It's supposed to be him, but it doesn't look right. It looks like somebody took the rock skinned him and then took the skin suit and then boiled it and then maybe ironed it and rubbed it down with wax and then stretched it over somebody else like a bald Crispin Glover wearing
0: a, a waxed up the rock suit. And and that would be fine if that's what they were going for. <laughs> but I guess the, the disconnect here is that clearly they wanted this to be like the rock as a scorpion centaur. Yes. And not this... Um, creepy, uh, inhuman abomination that you've described.
1: Right. And it, it sort of, I guess, works because it's OK if he's creepy because he's a monster. But he was creepy in a way that he clearly wasn't supposed to be. <laughs> it wasn't just that, oh, he's a monster. He looks weird. Something looked wrong with him. And this was at a time when computer generated animations were hot, right? Yeah. In 2001, they seemed to be getting better all the time. And yet they were terrible producing these characters that were not only not convincingly human, they were literally physically unpleasant to look at
0: they were repulsive yeah it was a period when everyone was just foolishly optimistic about what we could achieve with cgi and you know into in a a sense maybe that hasn't gone away we're still very the the rogue one example like clearly everyone was very optimistic about how great this looked and even though in, in to your point it does look great but within the context of the film something doesn't quite work
1: yeah I would say now for some people we we can get into this more, I think, especially in the next episode when mm-hmm. we then the next one we want to try to go beyond the valley right uh the uncanny valley but i I will say at this point, for some people, Tarkin was not over the line or under the line i don't know where you'd put the line, right. but for for some people, it worked, and I do think that's an interesting thing to acknowledge that while for me i I experienced this. Uh not to the same extent as the Scorpion King, but a kind of Scorpion King revulsion. Not everybody did.
0: Now one thing about Tarkin is that the the Tarkin CGI character is uh correct me if I'm wrong because I have not seen it myself yet, but he is interacting with one hundred percent human actors in this in his scenes. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Or at least he's in a film with other human actors, yeah. even if he's not sharing the exact same scene with them. So you might think, well, if you just had a movie just full of brilliant-looking Tarkins, maybe it would be okay. And maybe it would, but some of the classic examples of Uncanny Valley uh, happen to be films that are filled with nothing but CGI characters.
1: Yeah, how about one from the same year as uh, The Mummy Returns, 2001, if you go back to... Oh, yes, Final
0: Fantasy, The Spirits Within. Oh. <laughs> I remember kind of liking it. it, it I, I do, too. It was a film that I think I kind of... Half watched, half worked on like some just college coursework or something uh-huh. it was just on in the background. And and maybe that was the right level of immersion in it. But I remember digging it. But at the same time, there are a lot of, uh, of dead puppet eyes in this movie. Oh, yeah. And it's so
1: I saw it at the time. I remember having mixed feelings about the animation. Like in some senses, I remember thinking, wow, that looks so cool. That again may have been a product of its time. We can mm-hmm. talk about that more. How our expectations change as things go on, uh, but also, I don't know. There were multiple things wrong with that movie. One of which being that the last line of spoken dialogue in, in the movie, as a friend of mine pointed out at the time, was, "Oh,
0: it's warm." <laughs> well, I could I, I don't remember the the line, so I can't speak to, it, to how well it uh, landed. <laughs> but uh, I can see that being a problem. Roll credits. Now, another big one, this came out just three years later, is, uh, of course, the Polar Express.
1: Now, when people talk about the Uncanny Valley these days, I'd say this is a
0: top three mention. Yeah, this is one of the defining nightmares of our time. Uh, Now, based on
1: a wonderful children's book about the magic of Christmas time.
0: Yeah, the book is wonderful, but it's certainly one of these examples of you take a very brief children's book and you try and adapt it into a a feature-length motion picture. uh, That's very difficult to do. In fact... I'm really grasping for an example where anybody actually pulled it off like the best adaptations of children's books that come to mind are all very short uh uh very short films generally i'm I'm thinking of uh Dr. Seuss' adaptations yeah. from the seventies and eighties. Not the Polar Express, which is just uh, an, an exercise in psychic trauma brought on by just seemingly intentionally weaponized, uncanny valley, um, you know, the soulless puppet people. I've never seen this
1: movie, but I looked up clips to see what people were talking about. Mm-hmm. And, oh, man, <laughs> they they are not kidding it. I don't know how children made it through this movie. It has these <laughs> it has these creepy elves. It's got a creepy Tom Hanks as a train conductor. Mm-hmm. Nothing seems right. Everything seems like it's just about to everybody's about to start melting and screaming.
0: Yeah, I think this is one where it was a, a poor idea in my opinion and uh in in the technology was not there to to rescue the idea. Now the next one we're going to discuss though, I think is was a great idea on paper. But it just didn't work out on the screen, and that's of course 2007's Beowulf.
1: Now is this uh, Robert Zemeckis who did this?
0: Yeah, Robert Zemeckis uh, helmed it, and then the the writing it was uh, Neil Gaiman and Roger Avery. So wow. some you know some 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 big names just attached in to the the ideas behind this uh, this movie, and of course based on the uh, the story of Grendel and Beowulf, which is a, a, a classic. You would think you know hard to miss. Mm-hmm. Action narrative. I I think that Beowulf could make a really great movie if somebody did it right. Yeah, I I think so too. I have yet to see that movie, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, but certainly has all the the, uh, the the potential in the world. And they had a pretty cool um, vocal cast as well. I think Angelina Jolie is in it as the monster's mother.
1: They have Ray Winstone as Beowulf. Yeah,
0: he does the voice of of Beowulf, and uh, and who was it that plays the monster? Uh, we were just Crispin oh Chris Glover. Crispin Glover. Yeah. Now, bringing I said, it all back home. Yeah, not one of my favorite monster uh, depictions of Grindel, by the way. But he's a monster. We can get past that. But everybody else in the film really has the uncanny valley effect going on to, to a high degree.
1: I think I read a quote somewhere where a film critic was talking about how the monsters in the movie were only slightly less frightening than the humans. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, the humans, It just it just didn't land. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, well... How about video games? Right. Because they're because certainly when you're thinking about computer animated human beings interacting with each other, staring right into the camera, you think of video games. Oh yeah, yeah. And and I think I you know here's here's the thing. Here I have to say that I haven't noticed it as often these days. I think a lot of game animators
1: have found ways to get around the uncanny valley. Yeah. I don't want to get too ahead of our flow here, but I think one thing that I've noticed they sometimes do is that they don't actually go for photorealism. Mm-hmm. They, they go for a kind of more real than real combination of like a comic book style type character illustration mm-hmm. and then these other realistic aspects that when, when you look at a video game character, you would never mistake it for a photograph of a person, even a, even one that's got really good graphics. Mm-hmm. But much like the way dialogue is written in films, you know, you don't want to make dialogue sound like real people talk because that would be horrible to listen to. Right. But you do want to make it sound, quote, realistic. Yeah. You you don't want to make your characters look too realistic in animation, but you do want to make them look, quote,
0: realistic. In other words, they feel real. Yeah, now th- th- this reminds me of a game franchise that I haven't, I don't think I've ever played more than a demo of this, but the Gears of War series. So all the people in this kind of look like, like if you're going to be critical of it, you might say, well, everyone looks kind of like they're weird gorilla people. Like it was a, like we're in an alternate world where a, unrealistically huge upper bodies. Yeah, as if evolution took a slightly different turn into an intelligent uh, primates. Uh, and yet, they look real. They don't look like they don't get an uncanny uh, effect rolling off them. You know, you look at them, you can see pores, you can see uh, hair follicles. Uh, they look real, but they are, but, but, but they are, are certainly not going for a 100% authentic human being there. Hmm. All right. Now I want to pull out one more example here before we move on. And it's a, a rare example of. Uh, uncanny Valley avoidance—a very specific type of Uncanny Valley avoidance—and that is uh, from a fantastic stop-motion short that was produced by the National Film Board of Canada. And you can find this online if you just do a search for it. It's Madame Tutley Putley and it's a wonderful little uh, little film got very very french feel to it uh, mm-hmm. characters on a train weirds frightening things occurring uh definitely check it out but the the trick to it there these are stop motion animated characters and their eyes just feel so alive they stare right into you and you don't you don't question for a second that these are that these are people and the, the trick that they employed is that they used real human eyes not in a you know depraved, evil puppet master kind of a way either. They videotaped the eyes of human actors and then blended the footage with that of the puppets. Whoa, that sounds like an incredible gambit.
1: Because yeah. <laughs> that, that sounds like that could have produced some of the worst uncanny valley feelings
0: ever if it went wrong. Yeah, and and I don't know. There may be some people who watch this short and and have the opposite effect and and think that it's super creepy. I found it to be like this this interesting example of circumventing the the, the uncanny valley. But I'll leave It for you guys to decide. I'll include a link to this one as well as some of the other sources we're talking about on the landing page for this episode at stuff to All right. Well,
1: we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will get into the origin of the scientific idea of the Uncanny Valley and its history and
0: research. All right. We're back. So the Uncanny Valley. Where does this even come from? Right. So we've already been talking
1: about it because most people have heard of this. They're somewhat familiar with it. Uh, I, I was talking to Rachel about it, though. She was saying, you know, at least to her, it, it had this connotation of just generally synthetically generated images being creepy in one way or another. So maybe we should get into the specifics of the origin of the idea. So let's go back to the year nineteen seventy everything's great. (laughs) Wait, is it? I don't know. But, but everybody, everybody's looking forward to the future in terms of creating humanoid robots. What are we going to be able to do? Well, the Japanese roboticist Masahiro Mori, Of the Tokyo Institute of Technology, he wrote a paper that was published in this Japanese journal, Energy, that coined the the term uncanny valley to describe a problem that he was predicting with increasingly humanoid robots. And this was based on just some observations he'd had of uh, of different. Events, So you might say incidents in the progress of designing humanoid robots, such as uh, consumer electronics shows in Japan and stuff like that. So what he predicted was that as you had a humanoid robot, a robot that looks like a human and its likeness to a human increased, our attitude toward them would improve. Our affinity would go up as they became more human until they reached a certain tipping point of similarity to humans. Where suddenly our affinity, our friendly attitude, almost immediately shifts and plunges down into strong revulsion. Being human is likable. Being sort of human is likable, but being almost human is horrible and repulsive. Hmm. And then of course at the final end, uh, you, you would have a real human. So you can think of the Uncanny Valley as a phase in a graph, an XY graph. And along the horizontal axis on the bottom, you've got the degree of similarity to a human. And then on the vertical axis, you've got the degree of our affinity for the object. And Maury hypothesized this graph would have these two peaks. You'd start with zero on both axes because a thing that has no human-like traits basically gets no human uh, affinity response one way or another. We just Mm -hmm. don't, you know, uh, how much do you really like an industrial conveyor belt? (laughs) You're just sort of neutral on it. But as you increase the humanity, you give a robot arms or something that looks like a face, eyes, limbs. You climb this gentle, gradual slope to the first peak in affinity, um, you know. And the, he didn't name the peak, but I, I think we should name the peak. I think this first peak should be called something like the cuteness peak. That's not exactly right because it's not exactly cuteness, but it's recognizing something kind of human about what you're looking at.
0: Yeah, like, I mean, we don't have to describe cute to everyone here, but certainly this is Hello Kitty territory. Yeah. This is the, this is the domain of large-eyed, vaguely infant or kitten-like creatures. Sure. That would never be mistaken for human or real, but they resonate with us for a number of reasons. Like we could do a whole podcast. In fact, mm-hmm. we have an old podcast episode about the science of cute, why that connects with us.
1: Yeah. Uh, so they would include that. It would include all kinds of robots that are just kind of have general very basic faces that don't try to have human skin or anything like that that just mm-hmm. might have like kind of a mouth and some cartoonish eyes or C- something like c-3po that. P-O, right yeah sure yeah. there you go that the c-3po boldly on the cuteness peak. <laughs> but at a certain point after this first peak this graph drops off steeply so you keep going along the x-axis But then the y-axis drops off not just down to zero, but far below zero, into the negative affinity range. And this part of the graph is the uncanny valley. Uh, As the similarity to a real human continues to increase near a 100%, in other words, as it becomes indistinguishable from a real human, our affinity sharply shoots back up the second peak toward reality. So I'd call this second peak the reality peak. It's when you become... For all intents
0: and purposes, a real human being. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I would also say that if if robots were candy, the bottom of the uncanny valley would be banana flavored candy.
1: <laughs> uh, like that for me
0: has always been a flavor where it's like clearly like not only what are they, like runts that have the bananas. Yeah, I think so. Like like grape candy. Like grape candy doesn't really taste like grapes but it's it's far enough from the uncanny valley of candy that you're you're okay with oh, it. Oh, you're right. Banana candy actually does taste like bananas in a way that makes it not really good. Yeah, like I'm candy fans, I I don't eat that much candy anymore. So maybe the technology is advanced, but uh my memory of uh, the banana candy is, is, is that of an uncanny experience. Now one thing we should note is that, so this original paper was published in
1: 1970. A 2012 English translation was published in uh, the IEEE Robotics and Automation magazine and that's what I was using as my reference. That English translation from 2012. Uh, and it, so it has some graphs here. It has Maury's original graphs or interpretations of them. And we can get into a little more detail on the nuances of Maury's theory. But one thing I did read was that many years later, somebody contacted Maury. And he and they were talking to him about this idea he had of the uncanny valley. Mm -hmm. And they were like, well, does does anything lie beyond the peak of reality? And he said, oh, yeah, actually, there is such a thing. And he said, you know, beyond the real human, you'd have sort of like artistic ideals. Hmm. Oh, wow
0: like the realm of forms even
1: right yeah so well i think he used an example of like a statue of buddha you know a beautiful mm-hmm. perfect statue of buddha it's almost like it we have greater affinity for it than we have for a realistic human huh
0: because we've been well to a large uh, point we've been conditioned to right yeah that that kind of gets into this this idea of, of conditioned familiarity that we not only have with r- religious icons but also with pop culture icons. Yeah. So not only the Buddha, but also Robbie the robot, or uh, <laughs> or uh, even the Terminator. Or
1: um. well, yeah, that does make me think that in some ways, if if aesthetic ideals and things that we're familiar with through our culture might be even beyond humans. I mean, again, this is not like rigorous research. This is just what Maury says he thinks mm-hmm. or predicts. Uh, could could there be like a robot that we really love that's actually better than a than a normal human?
0: Well, you know, there's a, a study that came out last year, I believe, uh, from Penn State University that was kind of interesting along these lines. So the researchers surveyed 379 adults aged ages 60 to 86, and they asked them for specific memories of robot films they'd seen and their general attitudes towards robots. Mm-hmm. And and the you know with the age here, as you might imagine, they're really looking at uh, at potential care robots, like the idea of like, what kind of robot should help you use the bathroom? Do you want something that looks like kind of like a person or do you want something that looks like a, a, a forklift with a, a forklift mated with an easy chair?
1: But if you look at the ages used here and 2016, when the study took mm-hmm. place, you can say that these people grew up with science fiction.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, they might not have personally uh, consumed a lot of it, but it's in the culture. Right. Yeah, they, they definitely had access to it. And the researchers found that individuals who could recall more cinematic robot portrayals were increasingly likely to hold positive attitudes toward robots in general. So it didn't matter if they remembered murderous killbots or well-meaning <laughs> helper bots, uh they the mere memory of multiple robotic portrayals correlated to pro-robot vibes. Mm-hmm. So the study findings uh, they they also backed up the importance of human-looking human-esque robots to invoke uh, a sympathetic user response. But the researchers stressed that robot designers might want to incorporate robotic features that older adults will remember from their cinematic past.
1: Hmm. So it's saying that, like, don't just try to make it like a human. Try to make it like the robots we have known and loved.
0: Yeah, like make it fun. You know, <laughs> yeah. if I if I need a robot to help me go to the bathroom, make, make it make make them the robots from Silent Running, you know, Huey, Dewey and Louie, the little uh, little guys. Then at least I can engage my nostalgia a
1: little bit. Totally. Uh, so I want to look at a few more nuances from Maury's original paper in 1970. So one thing I do think is very interesting and I want to come back to as we explore this topic more Mori hypothesizes in the original paper that our perception of an uncanny valley might depend on the context in which we're we're viewing the being. Mm -hmm. And the example he gives here is he's talking about uh, Bunraku puppets. And so he says, quote, I don't think that on close inspection a Bunraku puppet appears similar to a human being, but – When we enjoy a puppet show in the theater, we're seated at a certain distance from the stage, the puppet's absolute size is ignored, its total appearance, including hand and eye movements, is close to that of a human being. So given our tendency as an audience to become absorbed in this form of art, we might feel a high level of affinity for the puppet. I think that's interesting. So it's it's not just the object, but it's also the context in which we experience the object. You might have very different feelings about a Bunraku puppet lying on the floor versus one that you go to see in the context of staging a play.
0: Yeah, I think the, the puppet argument is something to keep in mind throughout considerations of the Uncanny Valley because there are a lot of people that – there are a lot of people that have kind of a, um, an irrational aversion to puppets in mm-hmm. general. And certainly if you take just an, a, a still puppet and you hold it up, there are various puppets that one might find a little bit uncanny or creepy, et cetera. But in the process of performing with it, a talented performer is going to bring that to life. Like that's the art form. And and there's so many different varieties of puppetry. Certainly there, there are two broad categories are it's situations where the puppeteer is visible and situations where the puppeteer is not, you know, so you have yeah. your basic the Muppet situation where you don't see the puppeteers, but there are plenty of art forms of uh, puppetry performance styles in which the puppeteer is very visible, either completely or just their face. You see their eyes. You see that there's a person involved here, and uh, and there's not this this mystery or this sense of deception. Right.
1: Yeah, I, I think conceptual. Clues like that are very important. Also is when you consider the the, the idea of going to a puppet theater, mm-hmm. it also includes a certain attitude charging effect in the audience. Like an, an audience member goes to a puppet theater prepared to suspend their disbelief. Oh, yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like you put yourself in an intentional state of open mindedness about what you're viewing and you give yourself an interpretive framework through which to, like, if you were not prepared to watch a puppet theater story and suddenly a puppet was just moving around, that might be a lot creepier. Oh right? yeah, I agree. So part of the Uncanny Valley effect is probably also in the viewer themselves and in the, so the context is not just where you are, what's going on with what you're looking at, but what you're expecting to see. Now, one more thing that Maury points out is he thinks that there are going to be very different rules governing the uncanny valley for still objects versus moving objects. Mm. And essentially his hypothesis is that movement is going to amplify both the peaks and the valleys of the graph. So if you imagine the graph we said earlier gentle slope up to first peak you know kind of cute whatever uh, has some human characteristics then a dip down into too close to human but not there and then a final rise up to actually human he he would say if it's moving the peaks are going to be higher and the valleys are going to be lower
0: Hmm, okay.
1: So a thing that is moving gets greater affinity if it's good, if it's at one of these two peaks,
0: but it's even more revolting and unpleasant if it's at the valley. Uh so this this makes me think of Samara in The Ring. Yes. Uh, those scenes where Samara is emerging from the TV or the well. Her and, movement is uh is jerky and right, unreal. Yeah. And I understand that they they created that effect by having the actor uh, or actress walk backwards mm-hmm. and then reversing the footage. So you have this you have this this movement that is you know natural, but being reversed it it feels very unnatural and you're, and it 's hard to really pinpoint what 's not working for you about it right so
1: Maury, in the end concludes he gives this recommendation based on his hypothesis he says don 't go for realism right mm-hmm. it 's going to be so hard if you 're designing a humanoid robot now a lot of what we're we 're talking about in these episodes is animation he 's talking primarily about humanoid robots, but typically these uh, Two fields get somewhat conflated in discussion of the uncanny valley, because in both cases, you're trying to create something that looks pleasingly human. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he wrote, it's going to be so hard to get out of the valley up the second peak that that's the reality peak is so steep. Instead, roboticists should not try. And instead, they should aim for the very tip of the first peak. Stick on the cuteness peak because we know we can get there. Mm -hmm. Think think uh, WALL-E or other cute humanoid robots. The first peak is not really that hard to attain. People respond well to it. So why do you need to try to go past it? Um, You know, as for animated humans, I think a, a good analogy might be. Here's one. Pixar's The Incredibles versus Final Fantasy The Spirits Within, (laughs) which we already mentioned. The former, they don't look like real humans at all, right? They're cute, cartoonish, non-realistic humans, but they're quite pleasant. The latter goes for and fails at photorealism and creates these characters that are stiff and unsettling. In other words, he says, don't try to climb out of the valley. Just don't go into the valley to begin with.
0: Yeah this this really brings to mind just the idea of like filmmakers and creators standing on the the, the edge of this physical valley and there's a local yeah. guide there saying don't do it don't <laughs> right. do it the valley will consume you and they're like no we well, got Lucasfilm we can do it yeah we got all this high tech gear there's no way that anything's going to take us down there and then they go down there and it's just Jurassic Park or Congo with <laughs> they just get torn <laughs> apart
1: You know, I do, I do think the, the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park come out of the Uncanny Valley for dinosaurs. They
0: do, yeah. And
1: and that introduces an an interesting wrinkle in that, like, Maury is talking about humanoid qualities. Mm -hmm. It would probably be a related but different thing to just say animal
0: reality versus specifically human reality. Yeah. because I mean, when, for non-human creatures, uh, certainly we've been able to we've nailed that for ages. The stop-motion creatures often, even if their movements are kind of herky-jerky, they feel great. Um, that of uh, stop-motion robots in older films, I've never had a problem buying into them. And, uh, yeah, you look into the eye of the the T-Rex or the the Velociraptor and uh, you never doubt for a second. Yeah. But so one thing I think we should point
1: out is that as prescient as Maury was of what would become this widely recognized pop culture phenomenon – his paper is not it's not research really it's just sort of observation and interesting speculation. Mm-hmm. So what we should shift now to do I think is talk about whether there's really any evidence that the uncanny valley number 1 exists at all is it really a thing? Number 2 is it a uh, is it a unified phenomenon or is it there there's some separate things getting pulled into the net together here and then finally maybe we should look at if it's real what causes it. Yeah. Why do human brains tend to react this way? So maybe we should take a quick break, and then when we come back, we will get into more recent research. Okay, so the, there's there's really no denying that there is some kind of creepy humanoid synthetic figure effect, right? We, we've all seen these CGI movies, we've all seen these creepy robots, and had that feeling of, uh, don't like it. Mm-hmm. But... That doesn't necessarily mean that the uncanny valley as described by Maury or as co- popularly conceived in culture is, in fact, a, a correct description of what's happening there.
0: Right. Just because it, it feels truthy, just because it lines up with uh, uh, to a certain degree with how we feel about the world doesn't mean that it is, you know, that it is a, an actual effect that's taking place. Right. And or that it's even a, a fixed effect, et cetera. There are a lot of. Factors to contemplate here, like for my own part I've always found it interesting and I definitely think there's something to it i however you line it up with similar cases in life such as uh, say individuals that you may encounter who have uh, some degree of facial disfigurement and it might be extremely mild it might be it might be nothing more than a, uh, than a you know a lazy eye or a or you know some sort of cleft lip or cleft palate uh, scenario mm-hmm. it Or it just might be like their face is maybe not all that symmetrical. Right. And, you know, nobody whose face is perfectly symmetrical. But uh, with all of these individuals, you interact with them, you get to know them maybe. And whatever kind of like initial um, reaction is present. Uh, be it just kind of a huh or a huh? Mm-hmm. That goes away and yeah. you can. You, unless you're a total jerk. Unless yeah. you're a total jerk or <laughs> you're going to be able to relate to that person. You're going to be able to communicate with that person and you're not going to be thrown for a curve every time they make eye contact with you.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. So there is certainly like in Maury's original formulation, he, he would, I think, put different kinds of, um, physical abnormality somewhere on the ascending slope, on the, mm-hmm. on the, uh, on the uncanny valley slope. So you have a normal, healthy human up at the peak, I guess somewhere below the artistic ideal of the great Buddha statue or something. But uh-huh. uh, you'd have normal, healthy human, and then somewhere below them would be people who have, who look like there is something wrong with them in terms of having, uh, you know, perfect health and symmetricality.
0: I mean, certainly, cause just an ill person, you encounter someone who is clearly a little bit sick or a little bit hung over or whatever you can tell. And it, it, it causes a light to go off in your head. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet we can quite easily adapt to people like,
1: you know, you see somebody like that. It is, you just know it is not proper to react
0: to somebody with revulsion. Oh yeah. Like right now in Atlanta, as we're recording this, pollen is everywhere. Uh So there are several people in my life. I'm not really affected by the pollen so much, but it totally debilitates some of my coworkers, some of my friends. Red face, puffy eyes. Yeah. And and sometimes they're like wonked out on allergy medication to boot and you, you just get, you just, you know, you accept it. You realize, oh, well, um, you know, my my friend here is going to be kind of a pollen zombie for a couple of weeks. But that doesn't mean we, we can't uh, hang out. It doesn't mean we can't work on this or that.
1: Yeah. So uh, definitely the Uncanny Valley has plenty of critics and mm-hmm. plenty, I think, of very fair criticisms leveled at it. I just want to go back to one popular article I, I came across, a 2010 article in Popular Mechanics by Eric Sofji. Where he sort of points out that at the time people were, as I think they are still now, treating the uncanny valley as a proven fact. But in fact, at the time, he says, you know, th- there's really n- almost no convincing evidence that such a thing even exists. And he speaks to an expert named Carl McDorman, uh, director of the Android Science Center at Indiana University. And McDorman, who has conducted research on the valley, offered his opinion in the article saying, quote, it turns out that there may be more than one uncanny valley. It's not the overall degree of human likeness that makes a robot or animated character uncanny. It's more a matter of mis." If you have an extremely realistic skin texture, but at the same time cartoonish eyes or realistic eyes and an unrealistic skin texture, that's very uncanny. Uh, and the art, so th- that's a, an idea about the perceptual mismatch that I do want to revisit later in this episode. Uh, but the article also speaks to a guy named David Hansen, who's a roboticist. Who specifically specializes in creating very realistic humanoid robots. I think he did that, that Einstein head thing. Oh, yes. Thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Hansen claims that even if people find overly realistic robots creepy at first, they get used to them within minutes. This is sort of what you were just talking about, I think. You know, yeah, you, yeah, be, you become acclimated mm-hmm. even to something that you might, uh, at some kind of base level have a, a negative reaction to.
0: Yeah, I I keep thinking of Alien Isolation in this because it's the game I'm currently playing, and uh, and I feel like the the CGI characters are 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 pretty well done in there. I haven't felt that the tinge of uh, of uh, Uncanny Valley so, uh, washing over me. Some of the voice acting's a little weak, but uh yeah. But but speaking of the voice, like the, uh, the 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 androids you encounter, though with the sex and, uh, mm-hmm. uh androids that keep those, the, those are great. Yeah, and when i first encountered them well yeah but when i first encountered them yeah they had the uncanny intentionally kind of creepy appearance and the very creepy robot voice but yet when they were not actively attacking me i kind of was i was kind of cool with it it wasn't yeah. until they started exactly. becoming violent that uh that, that the mere sound of their voice or the appearance of one uh down the you know in the distance down a yeah. hallway would would cause my nerves to uh, react i mean those things are funny they're uh they're a good
1: part of that game. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so in this uh, article, the author also cites some other unnamed robot- roboticists as well as his own experience when he's talking about meeting robots that he had previously seen on video. And one thing he says is, you know, an uncanny valley effect that was present when I saw a video of this robot went away when I saw it in person. Hmm. I don't know if that's generally true of people. He claims it's true. But uh, even if this, this is truly the case for robots, I'm not sure how it would apply to animations. Huh. Probably wouldn't apply to animations. Um But I I think that there are some good threads to start uh tugging at here because it, it's probably the case that there are more dimensions to the Uncanny Valley than Maury imagined in 1970, meaning more than just that X axis of – Um, closeness to realistic human appearance versus distance from realistic human appearance.
0: Yeah, I mean, just what makes a person human? What makes a likeness human? There's arguably a whole chorus of things going on there. Yeah. Uh, So it would make sense that 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 chorus would play into the Uncanny Valley.
1: Yeah, so I I do think that there are multiple other dimensions to be explored, but I also don't think that means we can conclude that there's nothing to the Uncanny Valley. And in the past decade, there's actually been an explosion of research on the Uncanny Valley. So I I think we should look at a few interesting studies on the effect.
0: All right. Well, uh, first one here uh, that, that I came across was a 2009 Princeton University study and they looked into the effects of uncanny avali- of, of the uncanny valley on macaque monkeys. Hmm. So they- so
1: non-human subjects.
0: Yeah, yeah. cuz that that makes sense, right? If you yeah. if you want to see if this is an evolved response, right. let's look beyond the complications of human intelligence and human culture and look to something closely related to us. Yeah, is it biological rather than say cultural? Right. And so they they showed a selection of the primates close to real quote unquote computer visuals of macaques to see if they responded with coups and lip smacking as they do with their fellow monkeys. Uh-huh. Uh and uh, these uh, these close to real computer visuals were essentially uh, lawnmower man monkeys. Have you seen oh, lawnmower no. man? Like, okay. they kinda Are you had that asking again. if I've seen
1: lawnmower man? <laughs> Robert, you know, I've seen lawnmower man.
0: <laughs> yes. So, yeah, think lawnmower man. Uh, and you, you kind of have an idea that that level of computer animation and the monkeys did not want any part of it. They averted their eyes. They acted frightened when confronted with lawnmower man monkey. So it's not much, I admit, but uh, it's a little experimental evidence for the argument that uncanny valley is an evolutionary response. Right. So if you can observe it in monkeys,
1: there's probably some element of it that that is biological in the brain. It's instinctual and and not just something we've all learned to say about weirdly looking uh, animated characters and robots. Yeah. And that would be maybe a Weak piece of evidence, but still a piece of evidence you could put in the column of saying there is something there the valley does to some extent exist right
0: now uh, the next study that I ran across this comes back uh, this is to one of the, the the graphics that you pulled out of the I believe the original uh, study, correct? Yeah, yeah. The original, Mori's original graphs. Mm-hmm. So in this graph, we talked about diving down into the valley and then steadily trying to claw yourself out on the other side. Very, but, very steep ascent. Yeah. So you hit bottom and that's where you have the zombie. Right. And as you uh, begin to scale out of the uncanny valley, he has a um, uh, myoelectric hand and prosthetic hand down there as you climb back up, eventually hitting ordinary doll and and uh, puppets and ill person and maybe hitting healthy person at the very top again. But yeah. it's interesting that you have prosthetic hand down there because this next study looks at prosthetic and robotic and human hands.
1: Yeah, this is in the original study. Maury talks about the uh, the variable
0: creepiness of prosthetic hands. And I found, I found this interesting because I don't know about you, but, but growing up, I felt like Crazy robot hands, especially, were everywhere. Yeah. Like every G.I. Joe show or He-Man type uh, uh, franchise, there was always somebody. It could be a villain. It could be a hero. But there were crazy robot hands galore. Yeah. Uh, t- and I always found them cool. And and I, f- I feel like a lot of us probably even fetishized them to a certain point. Like we we didn't understand what it would necessarily be like to lose, an, lose a hand. Right. And the the shortfall and the ability of of technology at the time and even today to replace that missing limb. But we thought, well, that looks cool. A superpowered robot hand signed me up, right? But back to the study, 2013 University of Manchester study, and they looked at prosthetic hands. Uh, they used uh, 43 right handed uh, participants, 36 female and seven male. And they were all looking at photos and the photos were divided into three categories, human hands, robotic hands like. No question about it. That's a robot hand I'm looking at. Yeah. Like straight up Terminator exoskeleton or 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 even less human. Yeah. And then prosthetic hands. The results, I have to say, reading through some uh, some of the writing about this uh, in the original press release, the results were kind of confusing sounding. Hmm. They the the subjects here preferred human hands and robot hands but but rated and certainly rated prosthetic hands is more uncanny but prosthetics that looked more human were less eerie. okay so
1: so something's clearly a robot that's not too creepy Something's clearly a human that's not too creepy. If something is a robot trying to be human that might be more creepy but
0: as it gets better at being human, it's less creepy. I think so. I think that's my take. I mean, it also makes me wonder if if the hand alone is an air is like a, a subset of the uncanny valley, because certainly mm-hmm. if you're if you're just working with a hand and trying to replicate the movements, the look, the feel of a human limb yeah. for an observer, not we're not going to even get into the the, you know, the, the, the problems of creating something that the, the user can experience as a lifelike limb. Sure. But. If you're just looking at it, it's easy. you don't have to worry about its eye contact. You don't have to worry about micro expressions. Uh, it seems like it would be an, an easier peak to surmount.
1: Yeah. So the, if that is in fact the correct interpretation, that would seem to undercut the steepness
0: in Maury's original graph, right on the on the final peak. Yeah. That's. I mean, that's what I'm wondering because the hand taken in isolation is, I, I think, going to be easier to replicate.
1: Yeah. Uh, and Uncanny Valley, let's face it, when we talk about it, most of the time we're talking about faces. Right, right.
0: Now, speaking of uh, of faces, there's another study. Um, this uh, is a 2011 University of California San Diego study. Uh, this was published in uh, so- Social, Cognitive, and Effective Neuroscience. And they did exactly what you'd expect researchers to do when confronted with the uncanny valley. Grab the fMRI <laughs> and see what our brains are doing when we're looking at all these images. Oh, all these fMRI studies. <laughs> all right. Well, what what did they find? All i right. I'll, I'll roll through the basics of the study here. So 20 subjects. Not a, not a huge study here. Right. Aged 20 to 36. And here were some of the, 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 the caveats they had in selecting uh, these individuals. No experience working with robots. No time spent in Japan. No friends or family from Japan because they wanted to avoid uh, any, you know, uh, potential cultural exposure that would have made would make them more accepting of androids okay
1: so the idea is that maybe in japan people just experience humanoid robots way too much already they're too
0: they're uh acclimatized to them yeah that that's the 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 argument they made in in laying out the study okay let's let's not even go there let's just deal with people who have less exposure to robots okay and they were shown twelve videos of a humanoid robot named Reply Q2. Oh man, I'm looking it up right now. It's <laughs> it's it's rough. <laughs> but, well, they watched video twelve videos of this robot doing various things, and they were shown videos of humans doing the same things. And in fact, the the robots' movements and mannerisms were were patterned directly after the humans. So you had a you had a, a human version of the actions, you had an android version of the actions. Uh, you know, a lifelike robot. And then you had a a stripped down version of the android. So basically the android with all its skin ripped off. So it looks more like a robot, clearly a robot. Yeah. And it's doing the same motions as well. So this broke it all down to a, a human with biological appearance and movement, a robot with mechanical appearance and mechanical motion and a human seeming agent with the exact same me- mechanical movements as the robot. Hmm. Then. In came the fMRI scans. Okay. So the main brain area of note here, the, the area that that, that, uh, that lit up where we saw the most uh, activity, the um, parietal cortex on both sides of the brain, specifically in the areas that connect uh, the part of the brain's visual cortex that process bodily movements with the section of the motor cortex uh, thought to contain mirror neurons. Okay, so those would be like the uh, the empathy Yeah. Uh,
1: Parts of the brain where, you know, we we see something going on in some other creature like us and
0: we empathize with it. Exactly. Yeah. So when viewing the human looking android, the brain lit up at the recognition of a human form, but registered uh, essentially a, a computing error over the movement. Something didn't match up. Uh, so it's it's not according to this study, it would seem that it's not the biological movement or the biological appearance. It's the congruence or lack of congruence between the two. You look alive, but you're dead. You look dead, but you move uh, You or you speak as if you're alive. Uh, so the researchers noted that this is something that could uh, be uh, retuned through exposure, hmm. but it could be at, at, at the heart of what's going on with the uncanny valley.
1: Interesting. Well, I think we should look at one more study uh potentially providing recent support for the existence of the Uncanny Valley and then maybe after that we should break and then come back next time to get into the causes what what would be causing this effect and uh, and the future so I want to look at a study that came out in 2016 uh, in the journal Cognition by Mather and Reichling called Navigating a Social World with Robot Partners a Quantitative Cartography of the Uncanny Valley cute invocation of <laughs> map making there because it, it does kind of make I I like the idea of mapping the valley because that indicates that it may expand beyond just the one-dimensional dip Mm -hmm. and is, in fact, more of a topographical space, you know, like we can extend into three dimensions. But uh, anyway, so to get into the study, the authors note that while the uncanny valley has very strong intuitive support, people tend to take it as fact, experimental evidence for it has been limited and inconsistent as as we mentioned earlier, some studies seem to find evidence for the valley; others don't. You know, they say, ah, uh, this this isn't necessarily a thing. So there are multiple experiments here. First, they did a thing that I think was pretty smart. If they were trying to chart a a, a linear progression of the up and down peaks and valleys. They tried to generate an objectively determined gradient of more and less human-looking robots. So what a lot of these studies do is maybe along the macaques uh, study ideas, they show you a lawnmower man. They show you a real person. They show you a robot. Uh, and they ask you to characterize, you know, how do you feel about these what they did here is that they gathered a very large sample or relatively large sample of 80 images, quote, from the wild, meaning from the Internet. So these wild type robot samples. And they had a bunch of inclusion and exclusion criteria. I don't want to get into all of them, but they tried to limit it to where uh, it would it would kind of throw out all these variables that could complicate things. Like they tried to keep just certain types of pictures of faces of real robots that are built and uh and they had some exclusion criteria like it couldn't be a well-known character or a famous person um it couldn't have objects overlapping the face it couldn't be a toy it had to be a, a real humanoid robot and then they had subjects rate these images on what they called a mechano humanoid scale, basically, to come up with an objectively derived score for each image by using this, this empirical research by going to a bunch of people and saying, Hey, how mechanical is this? How human is this? And then after they had a rating for each of these 80 images and Robert, I've included an image, uh, I think down here to show you like what all these robots were. You can kind of see it starts with. Things that look not human at all, just like a lump of wires and junk, and then it proceeds up to something that looks like a picture of a guy.
0: Yes, yeah, very much so. It, it you start off with very uh, kind of uh, Wall-E-esque heads, yeah. then you move in through like like skinless gremlins, <laughs> <laughs> and then through the sort of the the expected uh, hierarchy of humanoid robots.
1: Uh huh. OK, so they've got this thing and then they they rate all these images and sort them into a, an ascending scale of humanness. And then they took ratings in multiple different ways of likability and trustworthiness. Now, in likability, they claim to find a robust uncanny valley effect where likability increased linearly with humanoid qualities up to a certain point. And then it took a negative dip As the humanoid qualities continued to increase past that point and then once again began to rise at the far end of the scale. Now, one thing I want to say just looking at the results is it does not appear that people were the most bothered by the things that were the most human looking. Like, given my understanding of the Uncanny Valley, I would have expected the stuff at the very top end of the scale to be the most disturbing. Yeah. But they actually kind of liked the stuff at the very top end of the scale. Hmm. It was somewhere closer to the upper half middle of the scale that they really didn't like. Um, so to whatever extent there is a real Uncanny Valley, it might not lie so close to the, quote, realism into the spectrum as we think. They also performed some trust experiments by creating a scenario where subjects would be asked to trust these robots to invest money for them. (laughs) Uh, And the results there were – basically they claimed that the trust uh, experiments did show some uncanny valley effects, but the results were a little more complicated than on the straightforward superficial likability scale. The likability really did look like uncanny valley was being displayed. They also performed experiments with a more traditional, quote, controlled series of composed face images. So it would just be a series of basically the same face as a robot, then a little bit more human, a little bit more human, a little bit more human on this gradient of humanness. And they they generally claim to find that there was evidence for the Uncanny Valley effect in both likability and trust with both the wild-caught robot image samples and with these composed face images that they came up with. But, as always, more studies are needed. But that looks like there is one studies showing pretty solid evidence that there is something like an uncanny valley effect.
0: Yeah, and I like the idea that uh that that, we're, that it's it's an, an uncanny valley, but maybe it's just a more more nuanced from a uh a topographical uh, standpoint, you know. There are yeah. there are more uh, little uh, little bumps and little valleys within the overall valley. Little caves you can crawl into and lose yourself <laughs> inside. And maybe even caves that uh, turn into tunnels that emerge on the other side. Yeah,
1: that, that's an interesting thing. I mean, like, they point out that there's a lot of variability in their mm-hmm. data, actually. Like, it wasn't, um, if you look at their, their plot chart of where all the data points fall, and then they plot a line going through it. If you plot a line going through all their data, it does show the uncanny valley effect, but, you know, there, there are outliers all over the place like there is some uh, there there are some robots that are just consistently more
0: like to more than the other ones i find it interesting that the some of the higher rated ones or at least uh i think what number 79 in particular kind of looks like a generic human as yeah. opposed to say go down to 74 that looks like a very specific human yeah like if i had to pick him or pick the human he's patterned after uh, assumingly, uh, um, out of a police lineup, I feel like I'd be able to do it. But
1: also, 74 looks angry. I'm sorry, folks, you can't see what we're talking about. But <laughs> yeah, he's yeah.
0: frowning at you. Kind of like, hmm, should I kill all humans or just uh, shrug it off? And maybe today's the day. That does introduce
1: uh, there are a lot of complicating factors here. And the authors acknowledge this, like these images don't all have necessarily the same emotional affect, like some Mm -hmm. of them seem happy, some seem unhappy. There's enough variability across the board that you can think you're getting a reasonably decent answer when you plot reactions across all samples. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of different stuff going on here in, in addition to just being more or less human.
0: <laughs> I like how uh, 34 on our uh, on our chart here uh, seems to rely heavily on um, animated mustache and eyebrows.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, what a- is that? It looks like a it looks like a a, a very must. I, I can't add to what you've just said. It's got a white mustache and brow and beard and it's saying, more
0: bully. Yeah, it looks like a a lot of these incomplete puppets or stripped away puppets you see where Uh they're like, all right, we got a lot of work to do on this thing, but at least we got the eyebrows and mustache in place.
1: But see, I find that one very likable. It doesn't look very human at all, but it's very, I want to play with it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, Robert. Well, we've got a bunch more stuff to talk about, but I think we should call it there and come back and finish our discussion of the Uncanny Valley next time. Yeah, we'll get into, we'll go beyond the
0: Uncanny Valley. Yeah, so
1: we'll we'll talk about uh, what might cause the Uncanny Valley effect to Mm -hmm. whatever extent it does exist and we can talk about you know what happens when you
0: ascend that that far slope All right. Well, hey, in the meantime, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You'll find videos, blog posts, uh, as well as links out to our various social media accounts. And the landing page for this episode uh, should include some links to some of the resources we're talking about here today.
1: And if you want to get in touch with us, as always, with feedback on this episode or any other, or you just want to say hi, or you want to let us know an episode topic you'd like us to cover in the future, you can email us at BlowTheMind at House Smash, 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 smash.